The scripture reading for today is on Job 19, 25 through 27. Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What the? Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining in. Those who are streaming online, welcome as well. Before I begin, I would like to introduce and welcome a newcomer. Her name is Sun Young Park. Uh, if you could just shoot your hand up so we can warmly welcome you if you're shy. You can, yeah, right there. Okay, guys. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I've been going through a three-part series of the book of Job, and the first part was from chapters 1 through 2, and part 2 is actually the next 34 chapters. And before you guys just get up and leave or turn off the stream, uh, I'll say that I have condensed these 34 chapters, hopefully in a concise sermon for everyone here. Uh, the first part of the Job series was about Job's suffering, and the second part will be his friends counseling him, and we're going to go over that today. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, I pray that you have mercy upon me. Well, truly, I depend on you and uh, really your spirit to make these words effective that uh, without you, that these words would be really said in vain. And so, God, we pray uh, that you allow me to be able to preach your word faithfully, uh, a sinner like me. Uh, and I pray, Lord, by your grace, that this word will replenish, refresh, and nourish uh, those who hear it, not because of my gifts, but because of your amazing love. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to be going over these 34 chapters in three points. The main point, though, is Jesus is our true comfort. So we are called to comfort the broken, being made more and more into his likeness. And the three points is this. The first point is how not to comfort. The second point is how to comfort. And the last point is Christ, the ultimate comforter. The first point, how not to comfort. If you remember chapters 1 through 2, we learn about Job's suffering, that he just had lost everything, everything. He lost his possessions. He lost his family. And he even lost his wife. She didn't die, but she forsook him. And now we see that he's in a state of complete desolation. And chapter 3 begins with Job going into a song of lament 
showing us how he's feeling at this moment. And because, of course, we're going through 34 chapters, I won't be able to go verse by verse. I'm going to pick some verses out that I, I believe epitomizes the main points of this passage or of the next part of the series. We can see here chapter 3, verse 11. This is what Job says. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? This hopefully can show us the desolation that Job is feeling. Now, some of us may read this and think, okay, is that, doesn't that mean that Job is like suicidal? Um, I don't think that this verse in any way uh, tells us that. When we read this, what it should show us is actually what Job is wrestling here with is this question. Is it better for me to have lived and go through this suffering or if I was just never born at all? He's not thinking maybe I should just kill myself to end this suffering, but he's thinking what is better because this suffering is so great on my life, I feel like it might have been just better if I just never lived at all. And so we can see a little glimpse of how Job feels in this verse. Complete desolation. And in this desolation, Job's three friends, quote-unquote friends, come to him to give him counsel. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Long story short, it's not good advice. They do not give good advice. Again, we'll go through some verses to summarize and condense the charge or the way that these three friends counsel Job. We, we will begin with Eliphaz. Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9 says this. He's telling this to Job in his suffering. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. He goes to say, Job chapter 4, verse 17, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can man be pure before his maker? What is Eliphaz saying? Eliphaz is saying this, You reap what you sow, Job. I've never seen an innocent person struck down, but those who are evil and wicked, I see God punish. And this is what he decides to tell Job in his time of most suffering. Bildad, chapter 8, Job chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, this is what he says. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will Ruse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. What is he saying here? Bildad is telling Job, hey, if you just seek God, because you're so wicked, Job, hey, seek God. And if you seek God, he will restore your possessions. What does that sound like? This is an ancient version of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel has been a lie in the church for a very long time. And we can see here that Bildad, underlying his 
theological assumptions is this prosperity gospel. Saying, hey, Job, seek God and God will bless you with riches. Zophar, the third friend, Job chapter 20, verse 28 through 29, the possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed from him by God. So what Zophar is saying is, God punish, punishes those who are wicked, so hence, Job, you must be wicked. You must have done something wrong here. It's 34 chapters, basically, right? The, the, the nice thing about trying to summarize, you know, foolish people and what they're saying is that they often repeat themselves in just the same way, and they're just wrong in different ways. So thankfully, because of that, 34 chapters of this onslaught of them accusing Job of being wicked, and that is why God is punishing him. Redundant, again and again. It was torture reading through all of that. I did it for you guys, so you guys can learn. Right? What they are propagating to Job is an ancient day prosperity gospel. God to them is like a good luck fortune, and if you make him happy, then he will bless you, and if you make him angry, he will punish you. Imagine this. Put yourself in Job's shoes. Imagine that you were just diagnosed with cancer, or you just lost your loved one, say like your significant other, and then these people come to your friends come to you and say, hey man, you need to repent. God is punishing you. That is the equivalence of what is happening to Job. If I was in Job's shoes, I would honestly not be friends with these people anymore. But yet he listens to these three friends of his for 34 chapters in a row. And this is Job's response, okay? So the way it's formatted is that Job's friends would speak, Job would respond, and I just laid out before you all of the charges or the way that his three friends are counseling Job. And this is how Job responds. See, Job is not going to fall into their trick or the enemy's deception. He's not going to buy into this prosperity gospel. This is what he says. He says, Job chapter 9, verse 2, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? His friends are accusing him of being evil before God, and the way he responds is this, well, if that were the case, then shouldn't we all be just suffering? Because who can be right before God? Truly. Who can be right before Him? He also says this, Job chapter 21, verse 7 through 9, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. His friends say, God punishes the wicked. And Job just says, that's simply not true. Look at all these wicked people. Look how rich they are. Look how they prosper. In fact, don't they prosper even more than, than fair people? Because they can lie and cheat and, and gain money in those ways, unjust ways. 
Yeah, they might be rich, but they will lose their souls. Look, at, look around you. There are wicked, plenty of wicked people who are rich. So he's confused. Like, what are you telling me? Why, what are you telling me? And finally he says this. You are miserable comforters. Job chapter 16, verse 2. I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Miserable comforters are you all. How to not comfort people. We see here with an anti-example of how we are to comfort people. But here we see the anti-example. We see that Job's friends are judging Job, telling him to repent because he's wicked. But Job says, I don't buy into that. In fact, I have my integrity. And we can replace this word integrity with the word faith. See, throughout all of his suffering, Job loses everything except one thing. And it says his integrity. But when we read it, basically we can replace that word with faith. So in all his suffering, he never lost his faith in God. Never lost his faith in God. He's surely confused and does not know why he is really being punished. But throughout all of that, it says that he never lost his integrity. We can see even back in Job's time, one's righteousness does not depend on his good works, but rather on faith in God. What miserable comforters these friends were. I grew up in a, in a very charismatic uh, youth group. So my middle school days, my very formative days, I, I grew up very charismatic. And that's because my youth director was very charismatic. And um, back then, see, there's like a, a lot of good things, honestly, I think, that came out of the charismatic movement. When I was younger, it was at its peak. And uh, some of the good things that came out of it is that through the charismatic movement, they emphasize so much on piety, right? Read, your, read the word. Pray day and night. Right? These things, like, I, I really cherished during that time in my youth days. But the bad thing about the charismatic movement is that it, is, it emphasizes spiritual gifts to the point where you forget about the gospel, Right? You forget about the very thing that brings you to Christ. And so I remember in the, my youth days, I was so focused on, on spiritual gifts. Like, I wanted them all. I wanted, it's, like, it's like I'm a character in a video game, and I need to upgrade my skills. And the first skill you get, right, level one is, like, tongues, right? And, man, I, I got tongues. I, I'm able to, to speak tongues when I, when, I, um, you know, when I pray. And then the next gift prophecy, one more level two prophecy, and I could unlock the, the level of prophecy, and, and like the ultimate gift is this, right, the, the <laughs> okay, well, I have a funny story, I didn't say this in my nine, nine o'clock, <sighs> should I say it, you guys want to hear this, the story, okay, anyways, I, I'll tell you a story anyways, okay, I don't care if you want to hear it, I also went to, uh, you know, kind of growing up, I also did YWAM, 
And will I, you know, recommend YWAM for you guys? You know, uh, at that time, it was good for me. Um, and so it's hard for me to say, you know, a blanket statement, go to YWAM. But I went to YWAM, and it was beneficial. But one of the craziest stories, if you don't know about YWAM, YWAM is very charismatic. And uh, one of the stories in YWAM that, like, went across, like, the whole campus was this. That they, again, it's like the charismatic movement is very, you know, they focus on like faith and faith equals spiritual gifts. The more faith you have, the more gifts you have. And one of the things that we do, or so the main point of YWAM is like to raise money, right, so you can go on a missions trip. And uh, so you do training, and at the end of the training, you're supposed to go raise enough money during your training, right, calling your friends, family, whatever. And they would hopefully donate enough money so you can buy a plane ticket and go on this trip with the rest of your team. Uh, and they do this by faith, right, by faith. I remember uh, the story was this. One student couldn't raise enough money, but he was like, I have enough faith here. I'm going to go to the airport anyways. And he goes to the airport, and uh, the story goes like this. He walks into the airport bathroom, and, you know, he does his thing. And then when he comes out of the bathroom, he comes out of the bathroom of the airport or where his team went to. He didn't raise enough money, but he's like, I think I have enough faith, and I think God, if God wants me there. And so basically what happened is he teleported from that airport from Hawaii to you know, the destination where his team was. Okay, how easily, you know, falsifiable is that, you know? But that was like the story that happened to campus, and so that's probably the ultimate gift you can get, right? That, honestly, if you can tell teleport, you know, then, then we're talking, you know, then, then, yeah, you reach level 99. What am I saying? Okay, so, <laughs> as a kid, I wanted these gifts, and, uh, and I remember the youth director, um, what we have something in the charismatic circle is called reading your mail. And it comes along with this gift of prophecy. And what the youth director would do is they would like, you know, she would pray uh, for you and she would like pray for me. And then she would read my mail, which means that she will say something in her prayer that speaks to me so personally. Or she will say something in the prayer that I haven't told anybody, but yet she was able to know it. And so when that happens, we call that reading your mail, right? Reading my mail because it's like personal, private. Now, only you know about it, but if someone uh, prays for you and prophesies and starts to read your mail, how influential is that to, you know, the person being prayed for? And I remember when the youth director would pray for me, like, she would read my mail. Like, you just prophesied over my life. And so for me, it was like, it was just so true to be able to prophesy. It was just part of um, youth group and growing up. Looking back at it now, I realized, like, when she prophesied over me, you know, I'm, like, pubescent teen, and she would pray, like, oh, Sam, you're struggling with lust this week. I was like, how did you know? No way. I didn't tell anyone that. Sam, you're, you're struggling with pride. I'm like, no, I'm not. She goes, See? See, you're struggling with it. You can't even admit you're struggling with pride. I say, ah, you're right. You got me. Prophecy. Anyway, so back then, I just, I, the thing about this is that you, when you look up to someone so fondly, 
the charismatic, this is why the charismatic church is so prone to spiritual abuse. Because when you look at one person so highly, they are undoubtedly a sinner. And they're not perfect. And so they will use that influence to most likely, you know, in wrong ways. Maybe not purposefully, but ends up happening. Now, I remember, you know, the youth director would pray for me and say that, you know, if you don't listen to God, then he will not love you. He doesn't love you. And I remember growing up hearing that and saying, then, man, I better be perfect. I better be perfect. I better not sin. I better read my Bible every day. I better pray, like, hours on end so God can love me. And I grew up thinking that. Until, by God's grace, I learned about his grace. I went to college and came out of that bubble, that community, and was introduced to not the you know, most reformed teaching, but still, by God's grace, enough so I can learn about his grace. And I remember this weight being lifted off my shoulder because my righteousness did not depend my, my standing before God did not depend on my righteousness anymore, but on another's righteousness who has already proven his righteousness to God. And I remember in the summers, I would have to go back home to my home church, and when I sat under the youth director's preaching, it was like another typical Sunday you know, sermon, fire brimstone. And I remember in the middle of the sermon, I just raised my hand and I said, But what about grace? What about grace? And she was shook. She had a response. And that's when I knew I had to leave that church. And to me, at that point, a lot of the spiritual abuse that I went through was revealed for me. How do you not comfort? If someone's suffering, you do not go to them and tell them to repent because they're a sinner and God's punishing them. You do not approach someone in judgment thinking you are better than them, and that's not how you comfort. So how do you comfort? And that brings us to our second point, how to comfort. See, the thing is, Job's friends, what they're saying, is not technically wrong. It's not technically wrong. It is true, right? It is true. Who can stand before God upright? It is true. God does punish us for our sin. If, we are su- if we're suffering right now, it is because of sin. It is. Job was most likely a sinner, so wicked, most likely. These things are all true, but even so they are true, Scripture makes it very clear that that's not how you respond to someone in their suffering. By this anti-example, we can see how we should respond. Romans puts it very plainly. It says this. Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In times of suffering, what we are supposed to do, even though we can tell them all the theological truths, the way we approach or respond to someone's suffering is by weeping with those who weep. We are to sympathize with them. We are to understand them. 
There is, I'm not saying there is not a time to tell them theological truths. There is a time for that. But the appropriate response to someone who is suffering is actually to sympathize. There's a very popular YouTube clip, and it's titled, It's Not About the Nail. <clears throat> Quick show of hands. Have you seen this clip? Does anyone know about this clip? It's not about the nail. I see one brave hand go up. I'm pretty sure some of you guys have seen it because when you look at, I, I saw the, the view count like yesterday, it was over 12 million views. But I think we can grab a lot of principles from this YouTube clip. The scenes opens up with a couple sitting on a couch. And you can kind of see, you know, the woman's face. And then this is what she says. <clears throat> you don't see her whole face. You just see like part of the side of her face. And she starts to talk about some of the things she's going through. She says, there's all this pressure, you know, and, this, and the guy's listening. And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. And the camera pans out, right, zooms out. And you can see that there's like a nail in the woman's head. <laughs> like an actual nail. It's a skit. It's not, it's not, the nail's not real, right? But there's a nail in her head. And the guy turns to her and says, um, well, you know, you have a, a nail in your head, right? And she goes, yeah, yeah, I know. But all this pain, and he says, well, I really think if you just get rid of that nail that uh, I think all your troubles go away. And then she turns to him and says, it's not about the nail. It's not. And then he goes, well, I really think, she says, no, see, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. You're not even listening to me right now. And he goes, okay, 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 okay. And then she continues. She says, man, I keep snagging all my sweaters on this nail on my head. And you know, the, the skit's like funny, right? It's comical. But it tries to put out a point. And at the end, the guy says, instead of trying to fix her problem, he goes, man, I, I can see why that's really hard. And then she goes, thank you. And they, they go in for a kiss, and she bumps the nail on his head. And she goes, ow, right? And that's how it ends. It's not about the nail. We can bring all the theological truths to anyone's suffering, but it's not necessarily about the nail. It's not about that. It's about comforting and walking with those who are suffering. One of the popular questions I get is, uh, Pastor Sam, have you ever fought with Semi? <clears throat> uh, and this is one of the stories. We haven't really fought. Like, if we fought, then, oh, she would have stand chance. Shouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> but if we, I, I would say that we never got into like, we never even really raised our voices to each other. And that's not because I'm like really perfect husband. It's because she is gracious and merciful to me. Uh, but there are times that she got, you know, upset. And, uh, and I remember coming back from like an event, or a social event, and we're driving in the car and <clears throat> see, see, guys, the, the, our radar, we have like radar, right? But it's really weak, right? It, the only thing it can do is just turn on and off, right? We don't have any details. We don't know like anything about, we just, we just sense something is wrong. That's, that's, that's as far as we can get. Right? We're just, we don't have, we don't have the, 
you know, the sense, right? And I knew on the car rides, I, I, I was like trying to make the mood light. I was joking and, you know, trying to be funny and have conversations. And, and Sammy's answers were just short, real short. And she wasn't looking at me when she was answering, just looking straight forward. And I was just like, something started going. I was like, okay, I, I think this means something's wrong, right? <laughs> Alarm is kind of going off. It's, it's, it's quiet. And then I go, uh, Sammy, are you okay? And she goes, yeah. And then like, the alarm starts to get a little louder. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't know, because it seems like, you know, you're upset. And um, she's like, no, I'm just tired. At this point, the alarm's going, Poo, just going crazy. <laughs> and then I just, but I know, like, okay, she doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it. I'm like, okay, you know, so I mean, like, if something's really wrong, you can tell me. You can tell me. And then maybe five minutes later of complete silence, she said, okay, this is what's bothering me. <laughs> I said, I knew it. My radar is working. And then she would tell me, she said, I'm upset because you were talking to that girl. <clears throat> My first response was, how dramatic can you be? Right? Of course, I have to talk to people. I have to talk to everyone, right? especially in ministry. I have to talk to girls all the time. And then she goes, no, 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 it's not about you talking. It's about how you're talking to her. And I was like, that's how I talk. That's just how I am. And she's like, no, no, you were flirting. You were flirting. I said, you, I said you're, you're being dramatic. You're being dramatic. And I started to get upset because I was like, how unjust, right? Why am I being accused when I feel like I haven't done anything wrong? And we both drove upset back home the rest of the car ride. <clears throat> By God's grace, I said, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not what's making her really upset. So I went to her and I just started off, I, you know, as a guy, men, as one of the things you do as a leader is some, if there's some relational right, tension, you must be the one to initiate, to fix it. And if, you know, you're... Wife needs time, give them time, but you need to be the one to repair the relationship. You must be an initiator. <clears throat> Not saying that women can't do it, but men, you must be ready to do it. And so I remember after some time, I went to her and I just said, sorry, sorry. I don't know what I really did wrong, but I wanted to let you know I'm coming to you and I am sorry. And I'm, you know, I want to hear, I want to understand what, what really happened. And after some details, you know, after some conversation and talking, at the end, it wasn't really about me talking to these girls. I mean, you know, Samuel was very clear. It's like, well, you know, you did this, you did this, you did that. And of course, she would know because, you know, that's probably how I talked to her. So she's like, why is he talking to these people like I talked to her? So she knows best. But for me, I'm just, you know, I'm dumb, so I don't know. So I said, thank you. You know, I didn't know. You know, and if that bothers you, I'm willing to change my behavior, right? whatever it is. And after talking more and more, understanding the problem, I realized it's not, it wasn't even about that at all, right? the talking. You know, that might be some of it, but really at the end, what she tells me is, I'm just scared that you will leave me. Right? And that is the underlying right, fear that she had. That was the real problem. 
she was scared that maybe she's inadequate and that my, I would start to have affections for other people over her. And after realizing that, my response is not defensive, saying, you are being dramatic, I just need to talk to people. My response is, Samuel, I will never leave you. And if that makes you think I'm going to leave you, I will 100% change my behavior. That's what you think. And I think after that, then she decided, you know, that I was funny again, and, you know, she could laugh at my jokes, and, you know, we can have a good time. But after, it only came after talking and trying to understand. It's not about the nail, right? It's about what's underlying that, right, the underlying fears and, and possibly insecurities and pains that needs to address. After uh, doing... Uh, ministry for six years, college ministry, you know, you run into a lot of students who suffer. And, um, and the tricky thing about college students is this. They often come to you suffering, right? In, in Scripture, it says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, giving us some principles on how to respond to sufferers. But that also means that if someone comes in rebellion to God, you do not try to necessarily sympathize with them, but if someone comes to you outright in rebellion to God, I think it is appropriate for us to respond in the same type of opposition. Right? It could be gentle, but still it needs to be direct. Right? Someone comes to you in complete rebellion, then I'm quick to say theological truths. Like, that's not true. Right? This is what Scripture says. <clears throat> but the tricky thing oftentimes is never so clean when someone's suffering or rebelling. Oftentimes, what happens, especially with college students, right, because they're at college and all of this temptation is there, they're, they are both sufferer and rebeller, right? They're both suffering and rebelling at the same time. And so when this college student will come to me and say, Pastor Sam, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drinking too much. I'm just drinking too much. I couldn't quickly just say, stop drinking, that's a sin. I couldn't respond like that. But if a college student does come to me like that, oftentimes there's something more underneath it. And my job or my main goal when I do talk to these college students or do counseling with them, for me, any conversation uh, with a student is an opportunity for counseling. Ed Welch says this, when you think you asked enough questions, when you really can't think of another question, ask one more. Always ask one more. Because our goal is to understand the sufferer and rebeller so we can address the issue appropriately. And so I'm not saying you do not address the drinking. We do address that. Right? If they're drinking, right? if they're committing any type of sin, you always have to address those two. Right? But it's beneficial to also figure out what is driving that sinful behavior. Tim Keller will say, try to find the sin underneath the sin. So I would ask, so why, why are you finding yourself drinking so much? They will say, oh, man, I just broke up with my girlfriend. I said, okay, that makes sense. 
Why does breaking up with your girlfriend hurt so much? And then they'll say, oh, you know, because I poured everything into the relationship and I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed. So I'm hurt. And it's weird to ask this question, but I really love to ask this question, especially when we get to here, because most of the time, the buck stops there for most people. But I like to ask this question because I like to see the amount of self-awareness the student has at this point. I will say, why does betrayal hurt you so much? And for most of us, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. But it's good to ask the question to see if it can be articulated. Some students get it here. They understand at that point. But some students, they need some direction. They need some nudging. And after a little bit, the student will say something like this. It's because I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone. I pour so much into this relationship. The betrayal hurt because now I'm all alone. I'm all alone. And it's just annoying to say it here, but then you ask, why does that hurt so much for you? Why does that hurt so much for you? And at this point, the light bulb goes off for some students, but sometimes it doesn't. And that brings us to our last point. Jesus, the ultimate comforter. At the end of all of Job's suffering, what is Job left with? What is Job reduced to after all the suffering that he goes through? And our brother Abe read it for us. Job 19, verse 25 through 27 says this. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Resurrection hope, even in Job's time. We can see in the Old Testament. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. What is Job reduced to after all of his suffering? He is reduced to simply his Redeemer. When all is lost, all he has is God. What's the purpose of Job? When we read Job, we say, man, look at Job. If he can get through it, then surely, right, with enough strength, I can get through it. The point of Job is actually the exact opposite. When we read Job, what should our response be? It should be this. What Job did, that's impossible. That is absolutely impossible. I cannot do that. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Because what Job is supposed to do is ultimately point us to Christ. When you lose everything, you realize all your earthly possessions are nothing but dross. And all you have is Christ. Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, chapter 8, verse 11, Indeed, I count everything as loss, 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order. Why does Apostle Paul suffer the loss of all things? Because of this. Because I may gain Christ and be found in him so I can have Christ in me and I can be in Christ. Not that which comes through faith in Christ. Wait, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is one sentence. It is one of the most powerful sentences in Scripture. That's like, if you want to get a tattoo, that's, that's the tattoo you get, right? That, see, I would get that tattooed on my head, right, backwards, so when I look in the mirror, I can, I can read it, right? That, this, that would be for me to remind myself all things are rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, the point of suffering is to remind us all we have is Christ. And that he is the one who can sympathize with us. How does he sympathize with us? See, we think Job is the innocent sufferer, but, but Christ, he's a true innocent sufferer, right? When we think about it, Job, three friends accused him unjustly. Christ, the whole nation of Israel accused him unjustly. He was falsely accused before Pontius Pilate. He was betrayed by his closest friends. Peter, the one that was closest to him, rejected him three times. Before the evening, all in one night, Jesus was a true innocent sufferer. Job, he did not even die, though he even deserved it. Christ, who didn't sin at all, suffered death on the cross. Christ is the true innocent sufferer that Job, Job is just a small, teeny shadow. The shadow that, that is that small, teeny shadow that we see of Christ, that one day that he will be the true innocent sufferer for us on our behalf. Why can Christ sympathize with us? Because he is the true innocent sufferer. In our deepest suffering, we can always look to Christ and know that he went exactly what we went through, plus more. And so, because of this, it enables us as Christians to be able to approach those who are suffering, not in a place of haughtiness, but we can approach those who are suffering knowing that we too are co-sufferers with them that we can sympathize with them because our Christ sympathizes with us. And so, I'll end here. I pray for Cornerstone to be comfort, better comforters than Job's friends. As we are faced with our own suffering and as we face people who are suffering, that we may be able to approach them, not in judgment, but rather as sympathizers. To weep with those who weep in gentleness and truth. Let us pray.
Father, Christ, Lord, you are the true innocent sufferer. That when we look at Job, he is just but a shadow of what you would accomplish on the cross on our behalf. So I pray that these words would help us and teach us and show us that we cannot do what Job does. We can't even do what Job does. And that's the whole point. So we can cling and cherish unto our Lord even tighter, even more so, to be able to suffer well and to help those who are suffering. Did you see me pray? Amen.